Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We've got a special episode today featuring two amazing women doing hugely important things for our democracy. Our first guest is Amanda Littman. Amanda is the co-founder and executive director of Run for Something, an organization supporting young candidates running in state and local elections. Later in the program, we'll hear from Kat Calvin, founder and executive director of Spread the Vote, a nonprofit dedicated to clearing obstacles that keep poor people from getting the IDs they need to vote. Can you believe this? <laughs> They've been called the Me Too midterms. In the context of the new wave of female empowerment driven by the Me Too movement, an unprecedented number of women are running for office. Some fresh young faces looking to turn the tide of politics in Salinas. We're seeing much younger candidates than usual running for city council, looking to unseat older incumbents. My priorities are a strong economy and job creation. Um, my priority is to end corruption and try to uh, end the, uh, the, the, the giant influence of special interests and money. First thing I want to do is lower the cost of health care and prescription drugs. I want to invest in job training programs so that people can get into the skilled jobs that they need. This voter ID law is primarily going to affect students and poor people of color. There has been a myth that has been perpetuated that there's some sort of in-person voter fraud going on. People are walking into uh, polling stations with hats and funny glasses and saying that there's somebody else's name and voting. We know for a fact that this is not happening. Hi, I'm Amanda Littman with Run for Something. I'm fighting to win in city halls, school boards, and state legislative races all across the country. Sorry, not sorry. So, Amanda, Run for Something was founded on the day of Trump's inauguration. So tell me a little bit about the organization and why you founded it. So I worked for Hillary for two years before that for President Obama, for the Florida governor's race, and for nonprofit in between. The week after Election Day, I got a Facebook message from somebody I went to college with. Hey, Amanda, you've worked in politics. You know this world. If I want to run for office because if Trump can be president, seems like anybody can do this, what do I do? And I did not have an answer for him. I did not know where to tell him to go if he wanted to be more than just a volunteer and more than just a voter. If he wanted to actually lead, there was nowhere that would be guaranteed to take his call. So I reached out to a whole bunch of people one of whom became my co-founder, this incredible operative named Ross Morales Riquetto. We wrote a plan, we built a website, and then we launched Run for Something, as you said, on Inauguration Day. We thought we'd get maybe 100 people who wanted to run for local office. Instead, in the first week, we had 1,000. As of today, we're up to more than 51,000 young people across the country who've raised their hands to say, I want to run for local office. What next? So we built an organization that does just that. We find more people who want to run for things like school board, city council, and state legislature, and then we help them through the process. I think it's so cool. And one of the things I love so much about Run for Something is that you proudly self-identify as progressive and that you came from the Obama and DNC campaigns. And I think there is this kind of like mistaken belief that you can't be progressive and be a traditional Democrat. So what are your thoughts on that? Lay that out for us. Unpack that a little bit. How does it work? 
for us, I think we define progressive and Democrat really broadly. We look for a set of shared values, a shared belief that everybody deserves access to affordable health care, that everybody deserves access to good education, that we need to fight for working families, that we need to protect organized labor, that we need to protect and fight for the environment. And we can share those goals and disagree on the tactics that we need to accomplish them. But the only way we get to really implement those tactics or even have a starting place to decide on them is to win elections first. So for us, a Democrat or a progressive in New York might look a little different than a Democrat in yes, Louisiana. Right. But we got to be willing to win everywhere and to run everywhere on our set of shared values. And we also know that for most people, especially for local elections, partisan identification is the key way they make their voting decisions. They look at the ballot and they say, this one's a Democrat. Cool. That's all I know about them. So for us, right. it's really important to support people running under that party line, knowing that that's the way that most voters make up their minds. It's so smart. And it makes so much sense because every district, every state, the issues are different. And I think people forget that when we live in these big cities, that when you look at some place, a state that isn't sort of a metropolitan city, you get such tunnel vision about what the issues are in the context of your life that you forget that it could be different in the context of someone else's life. And especially because what we only work on local elections. So library boards, school boards, water board, university boards and community college boards and yes, state house and state senate. The issues that you're focusing at these levels is often both a little bit more, but also a lot less partisan. It's right. how are we keeping water clean? How are we getting trash picked up? How are we funding our roads and our schools? The tangible delivery of those issues makes it so that what it means to be a progressive on them are things like my favorite example here. We worked with a coroner candidate in Jefferson County, Colorado, which fun fact, more than 1300 counties still elect coroners. He was running on a progressive platform. The thing that he wanted to ensure was that after death, trans people were not being misgendered which was something that the current coroner was doing. And that is a really important thing because the way that gender is recorded on death certificates affects death crime statistics and homicide statistics and suicide statistics, all of which are really important, especially as they relate to a community that is disproportionately represented in things like suicide and homicide. So as you think about what does a progressive value look like in an issue like a coroner's office, that's one of the ways in which it can show up. And it was a really interesting way to see the way that our values can translate themselves into progressive policies in all different kinds of offices. I love that story. It's a great example. Can you tell us about some of the candidates run for something as supporting? Yes. Yeah. So we have endorsed now in our three years more than 1,056 people across 49 wow. plus D.C., which is awesome. wild. Of the people who have gone through their elections so far, we've elected 309. Those 309 are 55% women, 48% people of color, and 18% LGBTQ. They're all under the age of 40. They are teachers. They are nurses. They are musicians and scientists and artists. They're battle rappers and rodeo stars and Chipotle managers, and they are just the kind of people that you want in elected office, especially now leading when it matters most. So for example, we worked with Representative Anna Eskamani in Florida. Anna is a former employee of Planned Parenthood. She's Iranian-American. She's a twin, which I just think is very fun. One of the things that she's doing right now is fighting these off-campus landlords around the university in her district at UCF near Orlando, who are currently charging students rent for apartments that they're not living in because the school is closed. Two of our local representatives are asking the governor to demand that college students be let out of their off-campus housing leases. Representatives Carlos Guillermo Smith and Anna Escamani say they sent a joint letter to the governor's office. They are asking him to sign an executive order. 
Earlier this week, Eskamani said her office asked 10 UCF off-campus housing complexes to let students out of their leases. She said many students do not qualify for unemployment or federal relief, so they may not be able to make the rent. So she is really pushing hard to try and fight to make sure that people aren't being charged for places they're not using. We also worked with Delegate Danica Rome in Virginia, who is just phenomenal. One of the things she has most recently done, you may remember her as the first openly trans person elected to a state legislature in 2017. Just a couple weeks ago, she fought and won against the USDA to get waivers so that students didn't have to show up in person to get the meals that they were entitled to as part of the free food delivery process that the USDA is running at schools. Yeah, Before, she's, a, she's amazing. She had to be there in person, and that's not sustainable right now. I think a rising star is Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo. Lena is, I think, now 28. She's an immigrant from Columbia. She's a graduate from the Harvard Kennedy School. She's the judge, so in Texas, that means the executive of Harris County, which is where Houston is, I think the third or fourth largest, biggest county in America. While the Texas lieutenant governor is going on TV saying, sacrifice yourselves for the economy. Lena is the one who shut down Harris County. She's the one fighting to ensure that people get out of jail to mitigate some of the outbreaks there. She's the one who earlier this year opened up polling places in Harris County during early voting so people could vote at any location in the county. She is making real tangible progress for people both before this pandemic and especially now trying to save lives. And she is someone who three years ago she wouldn't even have gotten asked to run, let alone supported in her campaign, because people looked at that race and said a Republican has been in that office for years. A Democrat can't even win. So let's not even try. So you mentioned that you focus on people under the age of 40. So I'm just wondering, why does that matter? For us, we look at it for a couple of reasons. The first is that young people are just disproportionately underrepresented in government. When young voters do head to the polls, they won't find many representatives that look like them. That's the findings of a report released today by Generation Progress. It said young people are generally underrepresented in their state legislators. On the congressional level, there are maybe 20 or 25 millennials in Congress. If we were accurately represented, there should be about 100. On the state legislative level, only 5% of state legislators are under the age of 35. And it really affects the way that policy decisions get made. Think about it in terms of affordable housing. Many people under the age of 35 or under 40 are not homeowners yet at least especially in some of these major cities. Having renters as part of the conversation about housing is a really important perspective. Similarly, working parents, similarly, people who've just had to recently negotiate for equal pay or have to deal with getting their birth control refilled or still have student loan debt. It's a perspective that's really needed in government and that isn't there. The second thing that for us was really important is to make sure that we have a space that is welcoming to people who don't have a lot of money. A lot of organizations focus their criteria on people who can raise funds. That makes sense for perspective of scarcity of resources. That makes sense if you're a party or an organization that wants to make sure you can support the guaranteed winners and the people who usually win are the ones who raise the most money. For us, we never wanted to have to make that criteria decision. We look at people who are running strong campaigns and fundraising is certainly one piece of that, but it is not the determinative piece of that. So allowing us to limit our scope of work to young people means it evens the playing field at least a little bit. The fourth thing, or third, I guess, <laughs> is that if you want to find the future presidents and future governors and future senators, you need people who are starting their careers a little bit earlier in life. For a long time, especially women did not run for office until after their kids had left the home. Think about Nancy Pelosi, for example, who didn't run until her kids were off at school. 
The same is true for a lot of the women in elected office now. I think that's one of many, many reasons why we haven't had a woman president is that it's only recently that people with kids at home ran for office and won, which means they have some time to build up their careers in public service. So the fact that we're working with women who are entering elected office, especially women and men and gender non-binary folks who are entering elected office in their 20s and in their 30s, that means that we're going to have long careers in public service, which allows them to climb the ranks and move up the ladder into federal government even sooner. What do you say to people who argue that experience also matters and that there's sometimes a loss of just institutional knowledge and expertise when we replace experienced politicians with younger voices? I think experience comes in a lot of different forms. The people that we work with are leaders in their community. They do have experience in terms of whether it's working in business or working in classrooms or working in hospitals. They are people whom their communities look to for leadership. That's one of our criteria for them is, are you the kind of person who someone in your neighborhood might call in an emergency? If you were going to have a launch party tomorrow, do you know where you would have it? How do you get people in the room and how many people you could get to show up? For us, there's a lot of different ways that you can bring experience to the table in governing. The flip to that is that most politicians get their start in local government. The experience that you need for a school board or a city council or even a state legislature is important, but that is the first rank. That is the first stepping stone. That's where you get the experience to be a governor, a senator, or a president. Tell us more, because I'm thinking about running for president in 2020. You should do it. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you should start with city council. Okay. Yes, there's my pitch. Well, I start small. Uh, Donald, Donald Trump, Trump didn't start with that. Well, I would say Donald Trump, not the exact model of competent <laughs> leadership. Oh. I would certainly never say that somebody with very little experience should run full feet ahead into a congressional race or a Senate race or a governor's race. But for these races where the scope is small and the material is a little bit more specific and more tangible and often more relatable or directly transferable from business experience or from community leadership experience, I think it's really important to have those perspectives in the room. I think the primary really exposed kind of this ugly generational divide. And I suspect in part it's because Trump just brings out the ugly. But how do we bring, like, for instance, the people who shout Tide Pods and the people who shout OK Boomer? How do we bring those people together? Now give them something to show up for. In order to get more kids to vote, I think we can focus on issues that are more local or at the state level, um, because I think those are going to impact people the most. I think the only way to get people to vote more is making voting required. Lower the voting age to around 16, because I feel like if we start voting at a younger age, it'll become routine, and then it'll just be a thing that we do, um, that we remember to do, instead of like getting caught up in all this college work and all this schoolwork. And I think that's the thing that I have found, especially with local politics, is a really meaningful driver. We've heard from organizations across the country who work, especially with young people and young communities of color, that they look at Washington and think those people don't care about me. They don't deliver for me. They make empty promises that they don't keep. They're never going to show up in my neighborhood. They're never going to ask for my vote. Why should I care or show up for them? But when you give them a city council candidate, John, who they know from playing basketball at the gym, or Jane from the PTA, or Jana from the grocery store that they see every week, or Jolene from church, that's somebody that they know, they trust, they have a relationship with, and who can get them excited about politics in a way that feels more real than national politics, especially as it relates to the White House. So what we have seen so far is that especially exciting, engaging candidates on the local level can gin up turnout for the top of the ticket. So as we looked to our 2020 priorities, one of the things that we included in that criteria was 
are you running somewhere that it matters to win across the state? So yes, we're obviously looking at places like Florida and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Arizona and these competitive presidential races, but also how is a school board candidate in Maine going to help increase turnout to beat Susan Collins? How is a city council candidate in Montana going to help elect a Democratic senator there? The voters they talk to are still going to show up and vote for Democrats, even if it's not the presidential who gets them to show up in the first place. I love that. It makes total sense. Are there any like specific trends that you see in candidates that you support? Like, are there any particular issues or solutions that they tend to share? I think all of our candidates have in common is that they have a strong rationale for running. One of the things I loved when we did a study in 2018 was that only 3% of the people who signed up the best and actually got on the ballot mentioned Trump in their intake survey. It's really not about him. Their rationale for running is a problem that they see in their community and an office that will give them a platform to solve it. That, to me, I think is the greatest indicator of a strong campaign. It means you're not deciding what do you believe. You're deciding how do you communicate what you believe. And as we know, the number one question that every candidate is going to get is, why are you doing this? So we ask our candidates very explicitly, why are you doing this? And just as importantly, why should a voter want you to win? Which is very different than why do you want to win? Why should a voter want you to win? From there, I think the other thing our candidates all have in common is they're running really strong grassroots campaigns. Up until the pandemic, I would say that our candidates are out hustling and out working and out knocking all of their opponents. We know that the average run for something candidate knocks between seven and 10,000 doors themselves, not including the rest of their campaign staff or their volunteer base. That's a lot of people they're talking to. And even now, they're the ones leading on doing one-on-one calls with every single voter on their list, doing text messages and video chats and Zooms and emails and Facebook groups and getting on next door and talking with people there or getting in the Reddit subreddit of their city or their neighborhood and connecting with folks there. They're the real personal messengers of the Democratic Party, and they're the ones that I think are doing those voter-to-voter contests that will move the needle. Even before the coronavirus, this election cycle featured so many just like structural challenges, right? We had insecure voting machines and counting systems, gerrymandering like crazy, special interest money, misinformation campaign from the Trump campaign. And now we add in COVID-19 and Trump is trying to suppress the vote by denying mail-in ballots. I mean, it's overwhelming, Right. And how do you think that we overcome this huge pile of shit that's in front of us? It is so hard. I think one of the things that we're really straightforward with candidates about is that running for office is really fucking hard. How I would describe my day. My days are busy and my days are long. Hectic, exhausting. It's hard to win. It's hard to do. You got to be in it for the right reasons because it's not glamorous. You're not going to make money. You're not going to have as much power as you think. Your family will be under a lot of scrutiny. It's going to suck. And the structural barriers are real and they're very, very hard to overcome. That being said, it is not impossible. And the best way to change them is to elect people who want to change them. I think about how do you change the things like gerrymandering 
and the ways in which borders are drawn for congressional districts. You elect Democrats to state legislative races. You make sure that at least if we can't win the chamber, we have Democrats who have a seat at the table and have a voice and then have a platform to push back on some of the most egregious gerrymandering I know we're going to see after 2020. How do you change campaign finance reform? That has to come through legislation. Even things like vote by mail right now, I hope that Congress does something, but I have no faith in Congress right now, and I have especially no faith in Senate Republicans. So I'm looking to state legislatures and to county clerks and to election administrators who can at the very least mitigate some of the worst parts of this crisis by pushing for vote by mail, by pushing for curbside voting, for pushing for early vote plus, ensuring that there are safe ways for people to vote during this crisis. The Republicans have done such a good job over the last 30 or 40 years of understanding that the people who determine the rules and the people who draw the maps and the people who decide the structures are the ones who have all the power. And in our system, most of that power comes at state and local government. That's why Republicans have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in winning these elections over the last 30 years. That's something that Democrats are just starting to break through and combat. And we have a lot of work to do, but it's why I believe that these races are more important than ever, because we have a chance to retake power of who controls these structures. So at the very least, we can start to undo some of the damage that they have done. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about being an outspoken feminist in the digital age, because I think that it transitions and translates into running for office, too. I feel like social media is basically the intersection of mansplaining and cancel culture a lot of the time, both of which are so incredibly toxic. And my fear is always that younger people are going to be intimidated out of being vocal about their feminism. And I only compare it to politics because you see like what happened to Katie Hill, who is someone I admire so much, who is basically what chased out of office for having the audacity to have a sex life. We don't treat men the way we treat women in office. So what do you think goes on there? Do you think that the experience of feminism and a woman in politics is similar? And do you think that it's harder for women to just run and win? It's certainly harder for women to run. But I do think one thing that gives me comfort is that when women run, they win at the same race as men. I have often said during candidate recruitment conversations, you know, you have to ask a woman seven times to run. So the research says a man is just going to tell you what he's running for and will ask you for money in the first conversation. Mediocre men raise their hands to run all the time. Mediocre women don't. The only women who really throw their hats in the ring, for the most part, there's certainly exceptions here, but for the most part, extraordinary women run for office. And it's one of the reasons why I think when women run, women win at the same rate is because the women who do and who are brave enough and tough enough to go first, to step forward and draw fire, as one of my heroes, Jen Palmieri, often says, those are amazing women. They're people like Stacey Abrams and Secretary Clinton and Senator Warren and Ayanna Presley and Catherine Cortez Master. There are amazing women who put themselves out there and are able to take the heat and blaze a path forward for the women who come next. So it is certainly harder. This is a tough line to walk because talking about how hard it is then makes it harder for women to run. You know, I think this is a conversation about like electability. If you talk about how hard it is for women to win, does that plant the idea in voters' minds that it's hard for women to win? So you shouldn't vote for her. Like, how do you balance that tension? But I think it's important to be clear-eyed about this, but it is hard for women to run. It is hard for women to win. And the more women who do it, the easier it will get. I always say, I want for one day for it to be 
so uninteresting. I want it to make zero news when a woman runs for office and wins. I want it to be the most boring story possible because when it's boring, it'll be unremarkable and it should be unremarkable. It's hard, but it's worth doing anyway. So I feel like I have to ask this question, even though I also feel like I know what the answer is going to be. But how do you think America would be different today if Hillary had taken office? You know, the alternate universe is so painful to think about. I know. It makes me cry sometimes, Amanda. I'm not kidding. Like, I'll just think about it in sort of a daydreaming sense. My body will just clam up and I'll start crying. It's really hard to imagine because there's so much good that she could have done. Take this pandemic, for example. It would have been bad. Would it have been this bad? No. (laughs) She would have hired smart people. She would have empowered them to do their jobs well. She would have saved lives. But I think the flip side of that and the thing that gives me hope is that the number of people who have stepped up to lead in that vacuum, in the absence of leadership, maybe wouldn't have happened if she was president. I'm not saying it's a silver lining. I'm not saying it's better than this way. It's not. It's real bad. And I like to think that we took a sort of two steps backwards or dozen steps backwards, and we will hopefully take at least a few steps forward because of the people who saw what happened in 2016, who see what happens now and are like, I can do this. I need to be a part of the leadership conversation. So what's your prediction for November? Do we take back the Senate, the White House? What do you think? I am firmly out of the prediction game. I have no idea what's going to happen. And anybody who tells you they do is bullshitting you because we cannot predict the future. (laughs) And we especially can't predict what's going to happen in these kinds of elections. That being said, I think it's important to keep in mind, we have a say in what happens this November. You know, the election is not some activity outside of our control. We get a chance to decide, are we going to vote? Are we going to volunteer? Are we going to give money? Are we going to invest and pay attention to the races and the candidates that we know will move voters and that will make a difference? So while I certainly hope Democrats will win, I hope we'll win the White House, I hope we'll win the Senate, I hope we'll hold the House, and more importantly, I hope we will win state legislative races across the country. I'm going to do everything in my power to make that true so that my hopes come to fruition. You know you can always call on me to be of service for you. And you're the best, and we appreciate it. Thank you. And how can people support Run for something. Will you give them all the information they need? Yes. So three things you can do if you are passionate or excited about Run for Something's mission. The first, you should run for office. The kind of person who listens to this podcast, if you're engaging this long, you should run for office. It might be too late for 2020, but it's not too late for 2021 or 2022 or beyond. So runforsomething.net slash run will get you all the information you need. Second thing you can do is volunteer. If you have time and you want to help us screen candidates, we'll train you on everything you need. If you have a special skill, like maybe you're a designer or you're a writer or you're a policy expert or you just are really good at something specific that you think a candidate may need help with, we'll connect you with a local race you can support. Runforsomething.net slash volunteer is the place to go for that. The third, and I will say the most important thing right now, is if you can chip in, if you have $5 or $10 or $500 or $10,000 or I don't know, millions, Every dollar means the world to our team. We are an entirely grassroots funded organization. We are scrappy. We are 18 staff across 10 states. Our budget this year is about 3 million, but we lost about half a million in expected revenue because of the pandemic. So every single dollar right now means the world to us. Whatever you can contribute, run for something.net slash donate is where you go. Well, thank you for everything you do, Amanda. And thanks for being a part of the podcast. Hi, I'm Kat Calvin, and I get people IDs so they can start their own revolution. Sorry, not sorry. 
What led you to the work that you do now? I'm, was it a moment? Was it a gradual it was, evolution? It was both. I took this incredible Voting Rights Act class. And I always feel like I sound really old when I say this, but back in those days, we had a fully functioning Voting Rights Act. So it was a law school class. You study the Voting Rights Act. You learn all about how it works from a legal perspective, how we got it, blah, 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 blah. And then go do something with your life. It exists. You're fine. And when I was in South Africa, I studied their voting systems for an independent study. It was very interesting because a lot of people in South Africa were predicting what would happen after Mandela died with the ANC and et cetera. And they were pretty much right on. But then I came back and I went into education and some other things because I'd been fascinated about it. But we didn't have any voting rights problems. You know, we had Obama in office, Eric Holder was a DOJ. They didn't actually do anything for voting rights, but everything was fine. But then in 2013, Shelby County v. Holder happened, which was the Supreme Court's case that took out the teeth of the Voting Rights Act. After nearly half a century, the U.S. Supreme Court pulled the plug today on federal supervision of nine mostly southern states whose records on race relations were deemed a threat to minority voting rights. So under the landmark Voting Rights Act, changes to voting laws in these nine states required advance approval by the Justice Department. But not anymore. So Chief Justice John Roberts summarized his opinion in four telling words. Here they are. Our country has changed. And I won't nerd out and explain everything. No, do it. Do it. That's what this podcast Um, is all about. All right. I'll nerd out a little bit. So essentially, there were a lot of sections of the Voting Rights Act, but there was a section called Section 5, and it corresponded with Section 2. It's a whole thing. But essentially, there were a list of states, it was like 12 or 13 states, the ones you can think of, that traditionally had significant problems with restricting the vote, suppressing the vote, who were under something called preclearance, which meant that any time the state of Alabama wanted to make a change in their elections, they had to go to the Department of Justice and say, hey, we'd like to implement a voter ID law or change this gerrymandering or say we can purge voters or whatever. And then the Department of Justice would look at it. 99.9% of the time, they'd say, no, that's incredibly racist. Go away. Right? Right. They always had to seek permission. And so they'd been trying forever. They'd been trying under Holder to seek permission for all of these laws, for voter ID and all these things. There is a conservative think tank called ALEC, which like pre-writes templates of legislation that then Republican legislators, governors, state, whatever, will just take to their states, sort of fill in some details, copy and paste and build out. Mm. And that's how we get all of this legislation that looks really similar across the country. It's brilliant. Democrats should have been doing it forever. It freaking works. And so they had been sort of printing out all of these things that, you know, let's test these voter ID laws and testing it in places like Indiana that weren't under preclearance and this and that. Who funds them? I don't know. I assume like some sort of brothers and and Sheldon Adelson and whoever else has that money. Any any billionaire who's not spending their money on rockets is probably giving it to Alec. And so they, you know, had been trying and trying and trying, and they were getting all these things rejected. Well, Chief Justice John Roberts decided in 2013, we have a black president, so obviously racism is over. Makes sense, right? Yep. So we don't need to protect voting rights anymore, because look, there's a black dude in the White House. Where you see the, the effects really um, come come from what I call the Obama coalition. Um, In the 2008 election, um, you had, um, he brought with his incredible ground game, 15 million new voters to the polls, overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, young and poor. 
When we begin to look at these voter suppression laws, that's the group that is targeted. Um, that is the group where issues such as voter ID, issues such as uh, closing voter um, um, voting polls, um, issues such as voter roll purges, all of those begin to take into account and hit each one of those groups, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes one more than the others, but that's where we're seeing it. So they took out the teeth of the voting rights. They took out the preclearance section, which means that now states didn't have to ask permission before mm. they made changes to voting. And literally, what I say within hours, literally yep. within hours, the Alabama and Texas state legislatures were working on their voter ID laws. And that's how you see these massive sweeps. There were a few voter ID laws in place in some states. There are some that were not as strict or whatever. But then all of a sudden, now we have 34 states that require identification before you can vote. Because Republicans also run most of the states, right? They have a trifecta in a lot of states and in others pre-2018. That's changed a little bit now. But then in the others, where they have the legislature or the governor's house or whatever. So all of a sudden you saw all of these voter ID laws pass. And you also saw like all of a sudden people were talking about voter purging, right? Like that wasn't a thing before. We have all this extreme gerrymandering, right? We have like all of these things that are happening because they didn't have to seek permission anymore. And so I sort of watched that happen. Nobody in the news was paying much attention to it. Like we weren't talking about voting rights in 2013 Mm because I don't know, Obama was president. We're talking about tan suits or whatever. (laughs) Which I'm not going to lie. I still haven't forgiven him for it. That was a terrible suit. (laughs) And so I sort of saw like, huh, there's things happening or whatever, but I was off living my life. But then 2016 came along and 2016 was their first major national election without the Voting Rights Act. And, wow. well, we saw what happened, yes. right? We saw that all of these states had voter ID laws. And we actually, when we started Spread the Vote, we sat down and we built out a spreadsheet of the margin of victory between Trump and Clinton in every voter ID state and the number of people who, based on national or state statistics, didn't have the ID required to vote but were eligible voters. And in almost every key state, Michigan, Wisconsin, the number of people who didn't have the ID they needed to vote vastly outnumbered the margin of victory, right? It's one of many problems. We have a lot of problems with voting in this country. One of them is voter ID laws. Early voting is totally wonderful and free and available in some states, right? Or mail-in voting. And in some states, you have to go miles to find a place to vote. And they're purging voters. And there's all of these things happening. Yeah. And so we saw the results both with the presidential election. But what I always look at and what we really focus on is that it takes far fewer votes to sway a local or state election. Right. Because there's people the don't understand. They don't right. Because we think that government is so big, mm-hmm. even on a state local level. We think it's unattainable to use our voice and affect change. Tell everybody what those margins look like so they can get a good understanding. Well, when you're talking about a state election, your governor or your senator, depending on the size of your state, obviously there's a big difference between Maine and California, mm-hmm. but it'll be anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands or maybe a few million, which is still far lower than the 33 million margins in presidential elections. But then break it down to, say, Congress, right? So one of the reasons that we were able to achieve such great wins over midterms is that Congress, they're broken up into districts. And it's really not that many votes, again, depending on the size of your district. And it's actually supposed to be, there's a whole algorithm so that they're reasonably 
similar, which is why California has, I think, 52,000 right. <laughs> members of Congress. It's in the Constitution. You know, it's, right. It's, and so it's a very small number of people. And then no one shows up to midterms. Like, they did in 2018, but previously, nobody ever showed up to midterms. All of us wonks for the last, like, decades have been, like, screaming, like, midterms! friggin' vote! Because <laughs> it's five people who show up. But then look at the people who really run your life, which is your mayor your yep. city council, yep. your sheriff, right? Those people, nobody shows up to vote. And, you know, your state legislature, right, which is even smaller. Mm-hmm. No one votes for those things. And it's such small margins. To give sort of an extreme example, after the 2017 elections in Virginia, so Virginia reelects their entire state legislature every two years. Virginia has a major election every single year. So we were there in Virginia, and it came down to a tied state legislature. There were equal number of Dems and Republicans. This was 2017. So they reelected everyone, tied. And there was one election left to be called out in Newport Beach, I believe. And the election was tied. And so they decided on who won that election by, I believe, drawing a name out of hats. Yes. Madam Vice Chair, will you give the bowl a stir? Oh. Cook in the kitchen. Okay. There you go. As I said, I will draw one canister. Madam Vice Chair will draw a second canister. The winner will be in the first canister. Madam Vice Chair, if you will pull your canister. The bowl is empty. (laughs) The winner of House District 94 is David Yancey. The Republican won. Yep. And then all of a sudden, the state legislature for the state of Virginia was Republican because of that one tie, because they drew someone's name out of a hat. And so we actually did some research because we were like, how often does this happen? You'd be shocked by how many elections from your dog catcher to your state legislature are chosen by rolling a dice or guessing a number or picking a card. Or there was one where you like rolled a dice to decide who picked a card in what order, like because they tie so often because nobody votes. That is crazy. In Knoxville, they had a city council election and it came down between a conservative middle-aged white man and this young black woman who was a Black Lives Matter activist. And it was tied and Knoxville didn't have any rules for how to decide that. So city council said, why don't you both give a little speech to us and we'll decide. Like, and I mean, guess who they chose. You yeah, know what's exactly. in Knoxville? The University of Tennessee. But Tennessee, students can't vote with their student IDs. Oh, look at if that. If one more student had voted in Knoxville, Amazing. they'd have a different city council. And you know who really decides on, like, things that affect college students' lives? City council. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yep. It it matters for anyone that's listening that doesn't think your vote counts or you, that you can make a difference. You really can. Mm-hmm. And isn't it just worth the try, even if you couldn't? And when you think about how hard voting is here in California, we have mail-in voting. I always vote like in my PJs with a bottle of wine. And we have really low voter turnout because our ballots are confusing. You have to go from work to where your house is to vote this and that. I think our average is like 18% or something, right? Like we have incredibly low voter turnout. And then similar around the country. I mean, we're some of the lowest in the country. Um, Shout out to Minnesota, which for like nine years has had the highest voter turnout in the country. Minnesotans are amazing. 
But, you know, if you bring five friends to the polls, there's a really good chance you might sway a local election. <laughs> Amazing. Because you know? nobody shows up. And very unpatriotic. <laughs> we have never been a country that encourages voting, right? right? Or makes it easy to vote. Or makes it easy. Obviously. So it's not, you know, I was... And that's not getting easier. No, we're trying as hard as we can to make it hard. It's people around the world are always like, why don't you guys want people to vote? And we're like, mm, power, right? So I have a hard time blaming people for not voting because, I mean, first of all, there are so many whose votes are being suppressed in a million different ways, right? Because exactly. we make it so hard because most of our generations were raised hearing, well, young people's votes don't matter and this and that and whatever. I'm doing research. We're writing a book right now. And in the 19th century, when, of course, only like white landed gentry could vote, they used to throw full parties at polling sites where they'd have free whiskey and there'd be a band and all the dudes would show up and they'd vote and then they'd hang out and party and whatever. And it was a good old time because yeah. they wanted all of them to vote. Of course. But then all of a sudden, like, women could vote and black people could vote and blah, blah, blah. And now it's like going to a funeral, right? Like, yeah. now voting is a task. Yeah. You can't find parking. You know, you have to, like, you have childcare. Don't have an hourly job and ask your boss to let you off, even no. if legally you, they're people supposed can't to. Afford. By the right. way, the people that it affects the most can't afford Right. To to the God forbid you have a disability or are even somewhat related to someone who might be undocumented or are elderly or, you know, it's yeah. November yeah. for 99% of the country. It's negative four degrees. That's you know? right. And so we make it so hard. And so for me, it's not even necessarily a matter of patriotism. People care. People want to vote. Or people would if they understood. We also only ever talk about presidential elections. So everyone thinks right. their vote is one of 64 million. Right. We have spent the last hundred years at least making it impossible to vote in this country. So then we're surprised when people don't. So what did you decide to do? I decided, all right, we've got these voter ID laws. And I was looking and I was like, well, let's see, are people fighting these in the courts? Are we like lobbying against them or whatever? And people are trying and losing. Pennsylvania is the only state that successfully beat a voter ID law. And I was like, all right, well, these are here. They're not going anywhere. Texas's voter ID law has been struck down by the courts five times and they still have one. So I said, well, I mean, fuck it. If we need IDs to vote, let's just get people IDs. So I started spread the vote and that's what we do. <laughs> she humbly <laughs> says, even though it's way more than that. Okay, you say we get people IDs. What does that mean? All the scenarios. Give us all the scenarios and what you take care of. I like the 90%, it's actually 89% of eligible voters in this country have ID. 11% don't, 21 million people. Not everyone actually does have ID. In Texas alone, at least half a million resident voters do not have the form of ID necessary to vote. North Carolina and Wisconsin have roughly 300,000 voters apiece with neither a driver's license nor a state ID. And in Virginia, an estimated 200,000 voters may not have one. I've had a passport literally since I was an infant, right? And then I got a military ID at 10 and a driver's license at 16. I've never lived a moment in my life without valid ID. So I was like, whatever, how hard could it be? Turns out it's really hard to get an ID, right? So you need a birth certificate. You need several proofs of identity. If You need several proofs of residency. You need a social security card. If you're a woman, in most states, you need proof of every single time your name changed, like 
documentary mm. proof, right? So every time you got married, divorced, widowed, whatever, you got to have proof of the name change both ways. It also costs money. Birth certificates cost money. IDs cost money. Transportation's tough. And if you don't have an ID, then you can't drive. And over 10 million Americans live more than 10 miles from their local DMV. And it causes advocacy, right? Like the Social Security Administration is a terrifying place. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. The DMV, it's, it's not like the DMV is known for being like all cuddles and rainbows, no. right? And so <laughs> you have all these things. And then you think about, well, who are the 11% of the population who don't have IDs? If you don't have an ID, you can't get a job. You can't get housing on your own. You can't get a bank account. I have now discovered that a large percentage of food banks won't give you food if you don't have an ID. Wow. A lot of homeless shelters won't let you sleep there if you don't have an ID. So you're looking at the population that is the most vulnerable and underserved in the country. People who can't work, people who are often unhoused, a lot of people who are returning citizens. We let people out of jail and we say, great, you served your time. Go get a job and don't associate with any of the people you do in your past life who may have helped you get into the situation. And, oh, by the way, we're not going to give you any of the things you need in order to get a new job. Like your ID, if you had one, is expired. Too bad. Go figure it out. Of course, we have high recidivism rates, which, of course, is all part of the intent of the system. And then you have women who, when they escape situations of domestic violence— You leave everything, right? It's so hard to leave a violent situation, particularly because we know that the point at which you're most likely to be killed is when you've left. Right. So you have to leave when you can and try to plan and then don't have kids, right? And so we work with a lot of women who have escaped violent situations, who have escaped sex trafficking. When you escape, you escape. You don't take a file folder with you, no. right? And who a lot of times, a lot of husbands hold on to documents because it's a measure of control. And so we work with a lot of kids. We go into high schools and a ton of kids who are 16, 17, 18, and their parents can't afford to help them get an ID. Kids aren't getting driver's licenses the way we think. I've been in high schools and down where you get a classroom of 35 seniors and you say, raise your hand if you have an ID and maybe a third raise their hands. Cars are expensive. Yeah. Most schools don't teach driver's ed anymore. I mean, they right. didn't even when I was in school. So you have to have hundreds of dollars to pay for driver's ed and you have to have insurance. There's so many folks, you know, we work with a lot of people who lost everything in the storm. Harvey yeah. and Matthew or Michael, whatever they're called. There's so many, you know. We work with a lot of folks who are Puerto Rican evacuees in Florida. And we actually have to have people in Puerto Rico because every document that we get has to, has to be through. notarized. So we have to have people who go to the hospital or to the DMV in Puerto Rico and get a document notarized and then send it to us, which is hard enough for us to coordinate. But if you've evacuated and you're in, you know, Florida and you're just trying to survive, there's so many situations in which And how much does it cost on average? Our average ID cost is $40. And then what is the most that it costs? Like if you have to take care of tickets. I think our most expensive ID so far has been $1,618. Because, so we've criminalized poverty and homelessness in this country, right? A native of Little Rock, Arkansas, has been caught up in Sherwood's hot checks department for decades. One check she wrote for $1.07 for a loaf of bread bounced. The debt ballooned. After fees and fines to nearly $400, she currently has a warrant in Sherwood's hot checks department. 
we have folks all the time who are homeless and sleeping on a bench and a cop decided to give them a ticket. We also have a lot of folks who are homeless and lost their documents because cops threw away all their stuff or, you know, sometimes burned them, right? And so if you get those tickets, if you get a fine, we have a lot of people who are what they call driving dirty, right? Driving without a license or insurance because they have to work, right? right. And so you get a ticket or a fine for that. Anything you get a ticket for, well, they block your ability to get an ID until you pay it. But you can't get a job to pay it without it's right. a whole thing. It's just and a cyclical. So it's a whole cycle. You know, when you get out of jail, you still have fines and everything. Like people think you right. just get out and you're like, bye. No, you have to pay for things. Yeah. So we have people come to us sometimes and they've got ten, fifteen thousand dollars in fines and we can't pay that. I mean, your original intention obviously was to get people to vote, but this bonus of getting people IDs to allow them to go sleep in a homeless shelter and allow them to get jobs, that's gotta feel amazing. It has become the thing that we are most proud of and that we focus on the most. It took me about five seconds after starting this to realize like, oh, you need an ID for a lot more than voting. Right. And by the way, when you don't have an ID, then you're not thinking about voting, right? So one of the yes. things that most yes. people say to us when we get an ID is I'm a person again. Because you're not one without an ID. It's your identity. You can't do anything without it. And so... When you don't feel like you're a person, you don't feel like making your voice or the polls, your voice doesn't matter, right? You can't provide for yourself or your family or know where you're going to Is there a person that you can recall that meant the most to you? And how do they find you, by the way? How do they find Spread the Vote? Yeah, so I will answer that first while I'm thinking of the other one. So what we do is we train volunteers who build hyper-local community chapters to work in their communities helping people get IDs. And we partner with all of the organizations that are already serving the same community that we're serving. So food banks, schools, homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, churches. We go into prisons in some places or county jails, like anywhere that we find that 11%. Because most of these places, they're serving folks in a lot of different ways, but they can't afford to help them with IDs. They don't have the resources or the people or right. whatever. So when we show up, they're like, oh, thank God. Because yeah. often they can't give people access to the services they have because they can't get them an ID. So we work at this shelter and homeless services organization, True Worth in Fort Worth, Texas, where they actually have a jobs program with the city. But their people have to have an ID to get the job. Of course. And the True Worth doesn't have the ability to help them get an ID, and the city won't help them. So the day we showed up, they, like, gave us an office. We oh, helped people. Awesome. We're there two or three times a week, every single week, helping people get IDs. And when I went to visit, she said, I don't know how to thank you, because we actually have good city jobs for these folks, Right. But there was, like, a huge percentage of people at the shelter who they couldn't assign them to, which don't get me started into, like, why I think the city of Fort Worth should just be giving them IDs. But, I, (laughs) you know, this is where, like, municipal IDs come in. But there's so many places we go where they're like, we could set them up with jobs or with housing or with this or that, but we can't help them get the IDs. So I'll tell you the story that I think surprised me the most in a way that I didn't think about IDs. I always think jobs, housing, whatever. But we have this incredible woman in Virginia And I went and visited, I met her, and she didn't have an ID and had a stroke and was in a coma, and they couldn't identify her. Mm. So she was a Jane Doe, and it took her family forever to find her because she was in a coma without an ID. Wow. And so she said, I will never let this out of my sight again. That's how serious it is. Right. Like, just not having that little piece of plastic. To be lost like that. To have basically no identity. And your family can't find you. 
Unbelievable. You know? So if someone's listening to this and they don't have ID, would they just go to spread the vote? Spreadthevote.org backslash vote. Or you can text us at 323-694-0738. Also go to spread the vote if you want to volunteer or obviously if you'd like to donate. We're getting folks IDs and getting them registered. We build out our election guides and have a voter turnout oh, program. So smart. Yes. Well, 77% of the people we work with have never voted before. Right. So giving them like a traditional election guide, I have no idea. We break down how do you vote? Why should I vote? What am I voting for? Like, what is the Secretary of Agriculture and what right. do they do and why right. do I care? And then break down in very simple bullet points, this is what this candidate stands for and what this candidate stands for. And we're totally nonpartisan. I don't care who you vote for. But if you'd like to vote, I'd like you to be able to make that decision on your own. And then we do community dinners and we'll provide food and bring together everyone we've gotten IDs for in that community. And they can bring their friends and family and sit down and walk them through it and write out a voter plan. And then if it's in a state where there's early voting, then we'll say, all right, great, everybody we're going to walk you across the street to, <laughs> to the yeah. polls. And if it's not, that's then what, we'll I mean, say, all right, we're I picking you people. up. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll say, all right, Chris DeRosa is coming to pick you up at 9 a.m. and be ready. And here's my number. And like, I'm going to call you the day before to make sure. So we really want to make it as accessible as possible. We actually launched a new year-round civic education program that we're doing with partners around the country so that we can help people learn about voting throughout the whole year and not starting in October. Right. And we have monthly themes and this adorable little Because it does seem like we just forget about it, We 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 forget forget about about all civic responsibility once the election's over, and then we freak out. Yeah, (laughs) and there's constant elections. We're putting out voter guides constantly because there's primaries, there's special elections, and all these things matter. But we only ever talk about the certain sexy elections in November. And then right. every once in a while, there'll be a special election that everybody jumps on. And like, that's all everybody talks about. But there's a constant election and there's a constant need to learn about it. We're fighting decades, if not centuries, of misinformation and suppression and fear. Yeah. It's going to take a lot more than three weeks. What states do you think are super important for 2020? Every state, all 50. Because in 2020, we'll have a presidential election, we'll have senators, we'll have mayors and city councils. It's true. Nobody's talking about any of that. Right. But there's everything. Every single state, every single city, every single county, every single district will be important in 2020. Each of us has a moral responsibility if we are of voting age and if we are registered to participate in that decision. So I come to California today and I'll leave here and go to Chicago and then to Detroit and then Baltimore, Maryland and New York to say the same thing. I come here to urge every person under the sound of my voice to go to the polls on the 3rd of November and vote your conviction. The adage tells us that there is strength in numbers, and there certainly is. Working in concert with large groups toward a common goal, overwhelming opposition with a volume an enormous movement can raise is a powerful and effective tool in implementing societal change. It's not the only tool, though. We tend to think of activism through the lens of size. Can we elect candidates at higher levels? Can we change state or national policy? Can we make network news? But maybe that's not how we should be approaching this work. Activism is both a privilege and often an act of privilege. Not all of us can travel to Washington to march on the Capitol. Not all of us can raise millions of dollars and dedicate our lives to achieving change on a grand and sweeping scale. But we can all do something. 
To make a difference, you need to ask yourself a simple question. What is the absolute most I can realistically do? Maybe it truly is dedicating your life to a cause, raising millions of dollars and leading a national movement, or maybe it's asking the person next door to vote, or driving someone to the polls, making calls for a candidate, or volunteering with or making a donation to an organization that is already doing what you want to achieve. Once you've honestly evaluated what the most you can do is, the key to making a difference is simple. Do every last bit of it. Sir Nicholas Winton, who in 1938 was a London stockbroker, visited Prague following the Nazi invasion. He saw Jewish families desperately trying to get their children out, and he knew he needed to do something. And so he figured out the most he could do, and he did it all forged documents, bribed officials, and even set up a dummy corporation to work with the British government. His work paid off. He was able to save 669 children from the Holocaust. Today, those 669 children and their descendants number about 6,000. I work on the motto, Sir Nicholas said, that if something's not impossible, there must be a way of doing it. And so, one person changed the world. Find your most, do your most, and you can make a difference too. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 